Welcome to the podcast that takes a feminist look at the world of money. My name is Alice Merry, and this is the Feminist Finance Podcast. Today I spoke with Mercedes Bidat. Mercedes is the co-founder and CEO of Kipu Market, a platform that enables micro-businesses to transact. Kipu was recently awarded third place in the Visa Everywhere Initiative Awards for Latin America and the Caribbean, adding this to its impressive string of recognition and awards. Mercedes is from Argentina, where she ran community development projects in informal settlements with an NGO and worked for CIPPC's Cities Programme, building capacity across local governments in Latin America. Mercedes has a master's degree in city planning at MIT, and after MIT, she moved to New York to advise the deputy mayor for policy strategy of the city on new economy strategies to support minority and women-owned businesses, all the while building up Kipu Market. Welcome, Mercedes, to the Feminist Finance Podcast. It's brilliant to have you here today with us. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, thank you for the invitation. Great to have you. And uh, before we get into you telling us all about the fantastic initiative, Kipu, it would be great to hear a little bit about the kinds of micro-businesses that you're working with. So Kipu's launched recently in Barranquilla in Colombia. Can you tell us a bit more about the area and the kind of businesses that you're working with there? Sure. So we are working in Barranquilla in Colombia, but we are a team that is coming from different countries in Latin America. And we've seen these type of micro-businesses, you know, concentrated in some parts of our cities. So just for you to imagine, right, like one in every four people in Latin America live in an informal settlement, uh, also called favelas, barrios, or, you know, each country calls it in a different way. And in these parts of our cities is where these informal micro-businesses are concentrated. So what we've seen is that uh, although they are kind of like Mar- like are, see- are part of the city that are marginalized, if you want, and are not seen as the mainstream economy, they are actually what makes the city work and where tons of uh, products and services are being offered and traded every day. And we work with that type of micro-business that it's, uh, it's called informal. We call them popular because informal has that connotation of Ill- illegal thing. And it's not you know, it's not necessarily illegal. It's a type of business that happens from uh, people's homes and that actually they um, they make these uh, neighborhood economies thrive and, and, and survive. So we work with that type of, of micro-business. And it could go from, you know, offering any type of product and any type of service, but usually are offered for the proximity, for people that live close to the, where they live. So these are really like the neighborhood businesses and the the life and soul of these areas. And we know that, you know, COVID's been affecting the economy across the whole world. It's been affecting formal and informal economies. Uh, how have you seen kind of, I guess you, you're starting to work with these micro enterprises in a time that's a real particularly strange time and a time of crisis for them. Uh, how are you seeing COVID playing out among these kinds of businesses? Yes, um, you know, we've been working in, in these communities, in these neighborhood economies for some years now, uh, before COVID, right? Pre-COVID. And after COVID, what we see is that they are living an emergency on top of a pre-existing emergency. These places where 
areas where there was there was already you know an, an economic uh, crisis that was constant, and now it's this is increased. The you know informal lending increased, the lack of access to capital obviously increased, and also the lack of of visibility. You know these are these are businesses that are not digitized, and. At this point, if you are not in the digital world, then you don't have a chance, you know. So what we've seen is that COVID actually increased poverty, increased informality. And obviously, these are actually businesses that they're hustlers and they they try to survive however they, they can. And what we've seen is that people reinvented themselves. They started selling things that they were not selling before, such as, you know, hand sanitizer, for example, and that type of, of stuff. There is more offer in the neighborhoods of products and services because because of the lockdowns, people had to stay at home and some of them lost their job, their jobs. Maybe they, they were working in factories or in, I don't know, cleaning houses or other types of job or construction, you know, outside the neighborhood. And most of, a lot of people lost their jobs. So they started to offer whatever they can inside the neighborhood uh, using their skills inside. So we've seen that there is an increase of amount of micro businesses in the neighborhood economy. There's an increase of digitalization. People are sending what they offer per day through WhatsApp mainly. And there's also an increase of, uh, you know, purchases inside the neighborhood. So if you want COVID is hitting hard and at the same time uh, it's, if you want, making the neighborhood economy more more strong. That's really interesting. So it's also kind of, yeah, building this kind of local economy that these sort of small businesses are such an essential part of. It's interesting, we're talking about this local economy and part of what people brings to these kind of economies is the idea of a community currency or a a platform kind of building on the idea of a community currency. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the history of community currencies. What are they? What are they trying to achieve? Yes. Um, so community currencies mainly started in the 1930s with uh, the, uh, the Great Depression. And they were a way, and they are still a way, um, of resiliency of, of communities, towns, cities during economic crisis. So the main concept is that when there is not enough, there's not enough money to buy, but actually there is demand and offer of products and services. So the community currency comes to replace that gap, to fill that gap and enable trade, even if there's not enough money, you know, fiat currency. And the main concept is also that they they allow communities to generate and retain wealth among them. So it's a you know it's a tool through which you can you, you can make sure that the money that you are trading with your with I mean that, that more money is staying locally. So that's basically the goal of the community currency worldwide. What happened is that and, and what we learned is that in in continents like Europe or the United States, there are tons of towns and maybe small communities that they have their own currency and mainly they started their currency when there was an economic crisis. And that's why in the 1930s they were there were a lot of community currencies around the world. What we seen in the informal settlements in these poor places of our cities is that the economic crisis is constant. There's never enough 
cash flow, money, liquidity, you know, to, to buy and sell, even though there is demand and offer of products and services. So there's where we come in with thinking of community currencies for the places where there is a, a lack of, of money, actually. And, and that is, as I was saying, that's, that's constant. That's, um, that's a structural also, you know, this is, it is a structural problem. So, uh, that's why we, we propose the use of, of community currencies in, in informal communities as a way to bring money liquidity and as a way to allow money also to stay in the community. What we've seen is that these are types of communities where they, you know, there is money getting in the community, but this money mostly get flows outside of it. You know, there's, there's, there are few mechanisms to make it retain there and to make that economy itself grow from a subsistence to a more productive economy. So the community currency is one of the mechanisms that we are working on to see if it could be a way of uh, retaining wealth in the communities. So tell us a bit more about how Kipu works. How does the platform bring this concept of community currency? And I know that you do a lot more as well beyond that. Yes. Um, yeah, so our goal is to, as I was saying, it's kind of the same role as the community currency, but we take it broader than that. We say we want, we see that these places in the cities were structurally marginalized from the mainstream economic system. And, but at the same time, they have a lot of commerce. They make our citizens and our cities, you know, survive and thrive. So our goal is to create and retain wealth locally. That's what, what we, that's why we work every day. The first mechanism that we found to make this possible is to make the offer and demand in the local communities visible. So now, as I was saying, there's a lack of digitalization and a lack of, you know, um, concentrating all this offer in one place. And that's what we what we do as Kipu. We create a marketplace that mirrors how the how the informal economy and the neighborhood economy works. So it's a marketplace where people can. It is free for users. It's very easy to digitize your business. You can have more than one business because these are dynamic, uh, you know, offers. So maybe I have one business today, tomorrow I have another one, and maybe I run two at the same time. So you can have more than one business. You can hide your address because it's in, as you are also an, an informal micro business, sometimes you don't want to show where you're running your business. So you can hide your address. You can bargain prices on a chat and change prices just for one customer and other other types of and features that actually mirror how this economy works. So that's the first part of it. It's a, it's a very robust marketplace. The second part of it is that by uploading your business to the marketplace, you can buy and sell to one another using this token or community currency, right? That it's meant for exchange and not for accumulation. And that allows users to, you know, save their money to spend outside their community in things that they cannot find in the community. Um, so that's the second part of it. It creates like a trading system um, that you access when you upload uh, a product or a service. So this currency is backed by your production capacity. It's not backed by, by fiat currency. Um, the, it, it is called mutual credit system. If you want, is a mutual credit that we give to one another interest-free. 
So, um, so that's like mainly what the product is about, a marketplace with, um, with this trading system. But in the end, um, the marketplace is registering, sorry, is recording all these transactions, you know, that were unrecorded before, but they were happening. And what we've seen is that nowadays, these micro-businesses access or they don't access uh, capital like financial services, or if they access, they do it in a, the, the interest rate is abusive. It comes from, you know, the informal lending that is predatory. Or is the, are the microloans that they also have a very high interest rate because there's no data, no information about how much they are selling, how much they are buying, their performance as a business and their risk. So, so that's the third part that we want to tackle is the access to equitable financial services. And we do that by creating a create worthiness system, if you want, for each business. And based on that is that we unlock the access to equitable financial services. So if I'm, so if, if I have a, a small business and, you know, I'm selling shoes or I've pivoted and now I'm selling face masks, how do I practically use this platform is I assume that you access it through a smartphone, an app, or how do I use it? Yes, it's a web-based app mm-hmm. because phones in the, in these places, they usually don't have enough memory, you know, to download apps. So it's a web-based app that it's connected also to WhatsApp and Facebook. So you can share your products and services also on WhatsApp and Facebook. So imagine you live in, you live in this community. We, we are in the first community where we are is a 10,000 inhabitants public housing community in the outskirts of Barranquilla. And uh, imagine you live there and you sell cakes, right? So you create your profile, your business profile, you upload your business, your products and services, and you received a certain amount of tokens that you can start using to buy to another neighbor. So you use those tokens to buy shoes to Julia, and Julia uses that to buy arepas to Rafael that also lives in the neighborhood. And that's how the the token starts to be in in circulation and the way you access it is through your smartphone in latin america the access to smartphones is three times africa so people are usually using whatsapp and and facebook and they they mostly don't have phones brilliant You've just started introducing this program into a community in barranquilla in colombia Congratulations for for starting that up. And I guess it's been a really strange time for you because this has kind of been introduced in in a community where you've been present for for quite some time. So you have strong relationships, but nonetheless, in a really strange time where I suppose you probably can't visit in person. Tell us tell us a bit about how that whole experience of of starting up the Kibu program in a in a new community during lockdown during COVID. Yes, uh, you're exactly right. It was very challenging. We launched uh, July 21st and we couldn't be there because at that point also Barranquilla was hit very hardly by COVID. So the lockdown was very strict. And the way in which we we made, you know, we advertised the existence of Kipu was through videos, was through flyers that we sell, we sent 
on WhatsApp groups, Facebook groups. We also sent SMS. And what what happened is that actually people uploaded their business, you know, on their products and services. And we started to see that that was happening and that like it, it might be that it was more word of mouth or neighbors helping neighbors to to use the platform. And you know, at the beginning our platform is still in beta version. So it it's it's not the best UX that you can imagine. It it could be better, right? It should be better. And we're working on that. But at that at that point it was like wow, like all these people are uploading their their stuff and actually it's not as easy to use as Instagram, you know. And so that was fascinating for me to me to see, you know, more and more businesses popping up on the platform. And so that, that that was great. And now that we could go, actually, two weeks ago, we 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 went to a neighborhood and we could start talking, you know, physically with people, and they started to to give us feedback, you know, and and that's what you need when you're developing technology. Like you need to talk with people and you need to to see how people are using what you build because if not, it's very difficult to improve it. And we've seen that they were saying that there are more businesses in the neighborhood than before. They were saying that they didn't expect it to see as much offer of things inside their neighborhood. And that um, it was very useful to see what people were offering. And and at this point, uh, but, but we'd seen also other behavior that we were not expecting, right? Like there, we actually proposed the use of the token as a way of exchange and not of accumulation. And like, to allow people to actually save in pesos and not in kipus. And there were some users saying like, no, well, I was saving actually my kipus to spend later, you know, when I really need the money. So we, we are actually at this point really collecting the feedback and, and improving the platform and the system itself. That's really interesting. It implies, implies a high level of trust, actually, for something very new that people are willing to save kipus given that that's something that they've only just come across, but they feel, it seems like they feel sufficient trust in it as an alternative currency or as a platform that they think that it's worth kind of holding on to those. Yeah, well, I don't, it's what we're trying to figure yeah. out, you know, it's like, what is it? Like, what, how is that, that people are, are actually relating to it? Um, this, I mean, all the design of people was a, a long way of, of community co-design of the platform so that is they know already the team they know already like the platform because a lot of them design it with us so so you know i think that's also why they trust it um and uh, but but yeah i mean the the behavior is kind of what we are learning right now and i'm trying to improve but if you want us as a marketplace um it's it's being used even if we couldn't be there physically talking with with the users. It's really interesting to hear about this kind of co-design process that you had with the the people who would end up using the platform in the end. And just hearing that, it made me curious to ask how people reacted to the idea when you first brought it to these these businesses. How, how did they respond to the idea of a community currency? How did they respond to the idea of of maybe digitalizing their businesses, their sales for the first time? Yes. Um, well, actually, I I went to a community with a question, right? The question was, what it means a solidarity economy to you? 
And we started working on that, like what it means to have a more collaborative economy that is different from other, from the mainstream, if you want. And the, there, there is the one of the answers of one of the users was like uh, the users, the neighbors actually. Now they are users, but they are neighbors. And she was saying, and they are mostly women, right? Like seventy percent of the people that are on Kipu are women. And one of one of the the neighbors, she was saying, well, you know, the 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 solidarity economy for me is an economy where we work as a chain. Like if you uh, if you are benefited by it, then I'm benefited too. Like we are helping one another. So that was like the first the first question and the first workshop that we did. We did. And then we uh, we implemented a consumption and production mapping. That this is a method that was used also in other communities where they have their own currency and they have their own like more solidarity economy. So I I brought this model from Kenya and from Brazil, and we adapted to the reality of the of that neighborhood. We carried out the the research with the micro business owners and we call this process the a participatory action research because it's when you know when you train the beneficiaries of the research as researchers. Um, so it's not trying to extract information to use it in a paper if you want, but actually like to look to go for um, information and data that could help us to build something that that will benefit the same community. So we did the we carried out this survey and then we analyzed the results together uh, with our around 30 micro business owners. And we started to think on real solutions like, OK, how, what, what, what can we do? Like if we if we could use technology and the smartphones that you are using every day, how this could be a solution to the problems that we mapped uh, about the economy of the neighborhood. And that's how like people started to say, well, I would love to have like an Uber, but for our neighborhood where I can ask whatever I want and it can come to my house. Or I would like to have like a place where I can see what people are offering. Um, another one said, said like, um, I, I, I would love to have like a, a, a bonus, you know, a bono kind of a voucher kind of a system among micro businesses. So that's how, like, even though I, I, I studied local currencies before all this process, this is how the whole process started. So, so it actually came out from these workshops. It was not something that we, we got there and we said, this is the solution we are bringing, but actually it was, it came out from the workshops. And then it was crazy because this was in 2018 and then we started creating a prototype and then we built an MVP and then is that we, you know, ended up releasing the beta version. But it was, it, it takes a lot of time to design technology, to build technology. And mostly if you want it to be as co-designed as possible, it takes time. And, and we ended up, I, I mean, I, I ended up writing my thesis about this whole process and and I call it technology like Kipu, I call it situated technology because it's a technology that actually is place-based, you know, speaks about the dynamics of, of places and proposes a more a propose a more collaborative way of of transactions if you want and uh, that speaks to the territory to the geography to the environment you know and and uh, sorry last, lastly what we say is that we need technology that can help us visualize our systems right like the thinking of the neighborhoods and systems that if we want to transform our systems we need to first to visualize them
So that's that's one of the goals of, of Ipo is helping communities themselves see how much assets they have and work uh, starting from there. So you've mentioned that part of what you're trying to do with Kipu is to help people get access to financial services that are at lower rates for them. You've mentioned kind of informal loans have higher rates and, and MFIs also are offering offering credit at quite high rates. What's what's your vision for that? Do you do you see that happening within Kipu or do you see this as something where people are going to be able to use their records within Kipu to kind of access more traditional banking programs? Yes, that's a great question. Um, so I will start again by our goal, right, of creating and retaining wealth locally. So if we want to create and retain wealth, then we need to bring more resources to these communities. And the way in which credit and lending, uh, insurance and other financial services are happening in these places is that as they are so in quote-unquote informals, quote-unquote invisible, there's no record of their of their activity to base the, to base the risk they have as a, as a lender, as a borrower, right? So the problem, as I was saying, is that money gets in their pockets through loans. They, there is access to financial services. Like financial inclusion is sold. There's no problem with financial inclusion. The problem is that the way in which that financial inclusion is happening is completely unfair. So they are accessing to loans, being predatory or being the microfinance institutions loans. But as I was saying, yes, interest rates are very high. The way in which they access is is not fair and it's not actually help them. It's, It's not actually speaking about their capacity as a business owner so even though yes like everything contributes to the same thing right like if we help communities to to collaborate and keep more money inside the communities buy more locally to one another that's a way of retaining wealth but the other way of, of creating wealth is also allowing them to access at better rates and what happens if by collaborating more and by recording more of your transactions inside your community, you access to better financial services. You know, then both things are contributing to the same goal, which is creating more wealth. So even though, yes, the financial services might be uh, from the mainstream financial system, we uh, as Kipu want to be the ones designing new financial services. So at this point, we have a partnership with with an MFI that works in these neighborhoods for some time now, like 20 years or more than 20 years. And they are willing to collaborate with us to create a new credit line based on Kipu data. So if we can show that we can cut the costs of originating um, originating loans and doing all the evaluation of the, of the borrower, you know, if we can do all that in a digitalized way, then we can decrease the default, we can decrease the risk and the interest rate. So that's the type of partnerships that we are building for now with that type of microfinance institutions that want to change their conditions based on data that they don't have at this point. 
in the future, we we as Kibo want to be the ones designing those financial services that could be microcredit, could be microinsurance, um, another type of financial services that that are tailored for the informal economy. This idea, kind of everything that you've been working on around the solidarity economy, and I really like what you mentioned earlier about the fact that you you came to the people you wanted to design for with this idea of solidarity economy and these ideas emerged from from those discussions that you had with them and i see how this idea is kind of expanding outwards also to maybe how could this impact on on people's ability to kind of access loans at fairer rates and so on i guess i'm just i'm just interested to see to ask you whether you see a kind of an even bigger role, not not only for Kipu, but for these ideas around solidarity economy in our world. It feels very timely at the moment. I think kind of worldwide people are spending more locally, becoming more locally focused during the lockdown. And at the same time, there's a lot of awareness that you know, how things have been going um, in the economic system isn't, isn't fair and people are looking for alternatives. And I wonder if you see a kind of a bigger role for these ideas around solidarity economy. Yes, I think that there's no other way in which we can develop as a, you know, as a society if we don't start changing the way in which we relate as economic human beings, you know. If we don't start, you know, basing the economy on on the on the real economy and not on the bubble that we've been living uh, all this time and at, at, obviously at, at this point, then other pandemics will happen, like other type of crisis will happen. Um, it, it's, you know, it's the thinking on the solidarity economy is thinking on how we relate to one another as human beings and also how we relate to our environment, to our world, how we take care of our land. And, and I think that, you know, maybe before before COVID, this was a radical idea. This was like maybe crazy idea, you know? Oh no, we have to bring solidarity to our economy. And maybe we're like, we were some folks just saying that. At this point, it seems that more more people got aware of this need. That, and, and it's not just that we need to have solidarity economy in the in the places that were, as I was saying, were marginalized, you know, or the more vulnerable places. No, we all need to change the way in which we we relate and and we consume. It's just about that. It's how we how we treat one another and and what we um, prioritize at the moment of making a decision of what to buy and to whom I will buy and at what price, you know, and where is this product coming from and who who put the labor into this product, you know. So I think it, it's a change of mindset from citizens uh, when we go and buy from companies when they are producing, but also when they are organizing their governance inside their company. You know, who gets more money, like how much is the rate between the CEO and the lower paid person in the company? Like, is it 300? Is it 30? So that's the difference. I think that also speaks about the solidarity economy where, you know, it's, it's, it's about how fair it is the wealth distributed. And, and I'm saying distributed and not redistributed. 
because we we need to start thinking about how we distribute wealth from the beginning, doing it in a fair way and not then trying to redistribute it, you know, because it was unfairly distributed at the beginning. So I think this this about thing about solidarity economy is a kind of change of mindset and change of of being inside companies and outside companies too. Absolutely. It's something you can see this at a political level, at a local level, corporate level, individual level. And I think Kipu is so interesting because it's kind of building it from the ground up among these kind of small businesses. I, I just want to wrap up by asking you to tell us a little bit about where you're up to now with Kipu and what your next steps are going to be. So now when COVID started, we also launched a campaign called Neighborhood Campaign in Colombia, where we call any institution, you know, that works on the ground, that works with communities that feels, if, if they feel that they could bring Kipu to their communities, that we can partner and we can implement Kipu together. So we launched this, this campaign. We got more than 20 um, interests, uh, interested institutions. Uh, at this point, we are uh, in the community where we are, that, where we launch, but we are also starting to implement in two new communities. And by next year, we will be in 10. And our next steps are, you know, improving the platform, improving the UX, making it as friendly as possible, and, and starting to create this create worthiness score to start, you know, connecting with with financial services. So those are our our next steps as a team. I've been interested in community currencies for a while. It's an idea with a long history, but one that initiatives like Kipu are adapting to new places and also making fit for a digital world. The key problem that they're aiming to solve is a lack of local liquidity, despite plentiful local demand and plentiful local supply. It's a deep structural problem in many of the communities where Kipu's working. But it's also a problem that the current crisis has made quite acute around the world. We're all being forced to be more local. We're all being forced to buy and do more business in our own communities. And at the same time as the economy is drying up, many communities are finding themselves short of cash. As many people are going back into second waves of lockdown at the moment, perhaps we should all be considering emergency local currencies. Please do let me know what you think about local currencies. Uh, you can get in touch at feministfinancepodcast at gmail.com. And please share this with a friend who you think might be interested. Thanks. See you next time. Thanks.